Welcome back to Read It or List It. I'm Phoebe. And I'm Ashley. And I'm so excited for today's guest in this author interview. We are here with Iman Hariri Kia. If you've been following me for a little bit, you know that I just adore Iman. She is one of the, like, just most, like, intelligent and kindest and hardworking people. And I had so much fun talking to her. Amon is a writer, editor, and author born and raised in New York City, a recipient of the Annabelle Bonner Medal for Short Fiction, and a nationally acclaimed journalist. She covers sex, relationships, identity, and adolescence. Her work has appeared in Vogue, Teen Vogue, Cosmo, Nylon, Bustle, and more. Her debut novel, A Hundred Other Girls, hits shelf on July 26th. It's a 2022 take on the world of media, perfect for fans of The Devil Wears Prada, The Bold Type, and if you grew up loving Meg Cabot, and she is one of the authors that made you a reader, I think you will particularly enjoy this interview. I think I've heard so many great things about this book, and I am just like so excited that we got to interview her, and I think that this is going to be definitely one that all fans of the podcast will enjoy. Here is my interview with Iman. Welcome to Read It or List It. I'm so excited to be here with Iman Hariri Kia, author of A Hundred Other Girls. Her debut novel drops the very end of July, July 26th. And if you are a fan of The Bold Type, The Devil Wears Prada, I can't recommend this book enough. Hi, Iman. How are you? I'm so excited to be here. I am such a huge fan of Phoebe. I feel like you are one of my first bookish friends and like book crushes. So this is just (laughs) total thrill and I'm so excited to chat. I'm so excited. I read your book back in May and I just feel like I've fallen like more and more in love with you as I like number one, like you as a person and then you're writing um, and then Obviously, I'm just like jumping right in, but I I have not stopped thinking about your article from your newsletter this past week, uh, giving like, you know, cred to Meg Cabot. And I was a huge Meg Cabot fan growing up and it just like reaffirmed how much I'm obsessed with you. Oh my gosh. Um, so I knew that we were kindred spirits because I'm just like, the biggest my Cabot fan because I think that she is the master of inserting like infectious voice and personality into messy relatable characters. Um, her writing was some of the first that I ever resonated with as a girl. And you know, Phoebe touched on uh, my newsletter essay from my newsletter Cherry Picks last month, and I was just sort of reflecting on what it means to love what you read and let you know be a, a true mood reader. Um, and also the very malpractice of shaming other people for what they like to read. And I think that um, I am in the belief that like Meg never really even got the credit where credit's due. Like mm-hmm. I, she should, she's like a literary great to me. And I, for so long, especially as a young child, um, I grew up in like sort of like a literary community. People were like a little bit pretentious when it came to their academic pursuits. I felt like I couldn't be vocal about the types of books I love to read because they would be called things like trashy novels or like, you know, like airport books, which 
hurt my feelings like drastically and Mm -hmm. made me feel like I had to hide. But it's taken me a long time to realize that there's so much more inherent value in books that you enjoy reading so much that they kick you off into like a new world, a new subgenre, a new community than books that you feel like you have to read to check off of a list. And I owe so much credit to Meg Cabot. I owe so much credit to like Lisey Harrison. I owe so much credit to all of the books that I read as a like avid YA reader, because those were the types of books that felt accessible to me. Those are Mm -hmm. the types of books that made me feel seen as a young person. And now that I am like in my twenties, writing um, new adult books and thinking about the types of books that I wish I had in my early 20s. The first names that come to mind are, you know, it's Meg's. I think about that voice. I think about that relatable character. I think about um, the way that it sort of like grounds you in its setting. So yeah. I'm glad that you related because oh, like that no, absolutely. Like <laughs> because those were the types of books that made number one made me a reader, but also made me realize like I could be a writer because it didn't feel so unattainable. And I think for so many people, they're turned off by reading or like, when I tell people, I'm like, oh yeah, I read 150 books a year. They're like, what? And I'm like, yeah. And mostly it's about human relationships and romances and books that make me happy I'm not reading War and Peace 150 times a year. And there's just as much value in the Click series or in stuff like that as there is in War and Peace. I mean, look, if War and Peace like tickles your fancy, have at it. But I genuinely, and I believe this to my very core, that people that don't enjoy reading or like don't consider themselves readers aren't or haven't found books that they actually enjoy and genres that they actually enjoy because I've seen people that say you know oh it takes me like six months to read a book fall in love with a genre or a series or an author and you know read five books in one week I really Mm -hmm. think that forcing yourself to read a book that you're not jiving with can make you feel like reading might not be for you um the second that you fall in love um with any of the subcategories I listed um before it will transform your relationship with reading. And you'll think of it as like a guilty pleasure, not necessarily something you have to force yourself to do. Um, or not even guilty, just pleasure, just right. straight up pleasure. So. Exactly. I, if I could get rid of one term in the world, it would be guilty pleasure because what, and I think that I was actually just reading an article where it feels like now, like with between like Gen Z and like the cuspers, cause like I'm a cusper of like millennial Gen Z, like, how like we're the first generation that's like not really giving in to these like capitalist stereotypes like we're doing the jobs that we love and obviously there's a lot of privilege that surrounds that and especially me as a white person like I'm fully aware of my privilege but you know why like life is so short so why are we doing these things that don't serve us and that I think comes down to like what we're doing in our free time and yeah so if you don't subscribe to Iman's newsletter, I'll have it linked. You have to, because she also does a state of the union every week. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Massey block. And I truly like, that was it. I was like signed, sealed and delivered. I need to be friends with this girl. <laughs> yeah, I, so what I happened is like almost a year ago, 
I posted on my Instagram stories being like, I wish Massey Block was a real person with a sub stack who sent out our current state of the union once a week. And I got so many messages from people being like, you need to do this, or this is all I want, or this would be incredible. And when I was thinking more seriously about launching a newsletter and I was, you know, in a place where I was leading an editorial team and doing a lot of editing, but not necessarily essay writing, which used to be my bread and butter and makes me really happy. And I wanted to have a opportunity to do more of it and also hold myself accountable to doing more of it. I thought, you know, what would be my dream scenario for a newsletter? And I just decided to bite the bullet and do it. And it has been so fun. It's something I look forward to doing um, each week. And I also just want to say, like, I love what you said about the way that Gen Z is um, changing work-life balance and dream job norms. I think that there's a lot of discussion of that in a hundred other girls, but I think really what it comes down to is that millennials were really focused on besting the system that Mm. they were born into, but Gen Z is really focused on questioning the system and changing it entirely or, you know, withdrawing from it. Um, And I think that that difference is so interesting. And I think that like all of the, you know, like the internet tropes that like pit Gen Z and and millennials against each other are such BS because in the end of the day, like we're both like oppressed by the same systems and we just have different ways of like dealing with those systems. Like we need to come together and just like, you know, you know, throw the whole thing in the trash and start over. I a hundred percent (laughs) agree. I'm right there with it. But obviously we are here to talk about your debut novel, A Hundred Other Girls. And I was just particularly like infatuated with the, it's not a trope, but it just feels like something that is constantly in our faces of print media versus digital media and the legitimacy of digital media. And like, I thought that that was, was one of my favorite aspects, but also I just have to say, and my friend met when I my friend Megan, who is definitely listening, she's the first friend I made when I moved to New York City, and she's also Iranian, and uh, she had never seen her name, like, in a book before. She's also a big Meg Cabot fan, until I got a book called Perfectly Parvin, and that's her middle name, and so when your book came through my inbox, I was like, Megan, I have something else for you. <laughs> And it's just, I don't know. I think it's so exciting. And why do you want to tell us a little bit about hundred other girls? hundred percent. Well, I first want to say like perfectly Farvin and Olivia are amazing. And I, you know, she is doing such incredible work in terms of Middle Eastern and Iranian representation and YA and everyone should go read that book if they haven't. Um, I'm a huge fan of hers. Um, hi Megan, shout, shout out. <laughs> um, that's so amazing. We love to hear it. Yeah. I mean, a hundred other girls for anyone listening who isn't familiar with the book, um, follows Nora, our protagonist. She's Middle Eastern American. She recently graduated from college. She's a little bit lost. Um, she wants to be a writer, but she's currently just like live blogging, living on her sister's couch, tutoring Upper East Side kids when she gets a crazy opportunity to um, interview for an entry-level position at her favorite culture magazine, Vinyl. Um, And she thinks that this is going to kickstart her career. She can't believe how lucky she is. But when she gets there, she almost immediately notices a tension between the old school elitist print team and the new school sort of like woke, but not for the right reasons, uh, digital team. And as 
drama and chaos ensues, she has to choose which team to side with or figure out how to stand up for herself and form her own team altogether. Um, and I always talk about this book in very like serious analytical terms because <laughs> for me, it, it felt very serious writing it, but at its heart, it's like a very fun, easy to read romp. Um, it's juicy, it's funny. Um, at, it's got a wonderful sister relationship that I'm a huge fan of. Um, a lot of really great diversity and representation, um, a ill-advised crush on a coworker. And it, I really like to think of it as like a coming of age novel, but for mm-hmm. women in their twenties who have just entered the workforce. Although I think everyone who's ever had a dream job that turned out to be a little bit more job, a little less dream will like totally relate to it. Um, and the print digital, uh, conflict is definitely at the heart of the book and I agree like this is something that I feel like every day we're being served articles about like the decline of even you know the printing press and the Mm -hmm. decline of books and the decline of print magazines and um, digital media and its sustainability and um, ultimately I wanted to highlight the fact that like they're the larger system of of media and publishing is broken and Mm -hmm. there are no winners and losers when it comes to the print digital feud everyone is just struggling to survive within this like system that's oppressing them um and I think that when you first start reading the book you think that there's clearly like a good guy and a bad guy um and things feel a lot more black and white but as you continue to read you realize that um you know everyone is operating from a place that's a lot more morally gray and um everyone is trying their best to succeed within the means that they're, you know, they've grown up in the environment that they understand and they know and they've succeeded in. Um, But ultimately, Nora um, comes in with like a very strong code of ethics and starts to question that code of ethics, sometimes betrays it, sometimes has to realign with it. Um, And I think it's really relatable for anyone young who is um, dealing with sort of generational tension from older people at the company who feel like they've had to struggle to get to where they are and don't understand necessarily the way that young people move throughout the workforce Mm -hmm. or young people who feel like um, they need to prove themselves so they work 24 seven or are okay with, you know, underpaid work environments um, because they're worried about being replaced. So ultimately, I think that um, this book at its heart is, you know, an interrogation of a larger system that needs to be reworked in order to benefit people of all ages, all backgrounds, and all people that want to tell stories. Yeah. And it is so fun. I like that. But that's the thing. I feel like we can still and touch on these like very important themes within a book that has accessible language that like there's so many fun pop culture references and like your book's going to be like a time capsule of like the early 2020s just like when like when I go back and reread um like I love the mediator series by Meg Cabot that's one of my faves um and when you reread those books like yes you're aware that they're dated but I don't think that that necessarily makes something bad that's something that people love to like pick out. They're like, oh, there's so many pop culture references. It's like, okay, but like that means it's relevant to like where you're reading it today. And it could be relevant when you pick it up later on. Ultimately, like my my 
POV here is that pop culture references are one of the most divisive inclusions in like the <laughs> community. People either love them or hate them. I am of the opinion that when done intentionally and um, you know, sort of like a little bit more artistically, they can really enhance a book and make you sort of feel like you're in a group text with the character. Yeah. Um, I was very inspired by Meg Cabot, the Mediator series, the Princess Diaries series. Also, I don't know if you remember, but the All-American Girl series, which is like- That's how I learned about way too many right. things too Truly, early. No. <laughs> and also was like, I mean, it's, that book is one giant reference. Like both mm -hmm. the, that book and its sequel is one giant reference. But when you read it, I, you know, I find it as entertaining today as I did when I was, you know, a preteen. So yeah, I reread it during the start of the pandemic. <laughs> I reread the whole Prince Diaries series during the pandemic. And like, it really helps me sort of tap into, you know, a younger voice and also remember what it was like to just be falling in love mm -hmm. with a character and, and her world. And so but my point being that I learned about a lot of books, television, television shows, movies, music from book series like these. And I sort of wanted to ground this era of um, print and digital magazines and ground the world of this book in enough pop, like tasteful pop culture references that it felt like, oh, this is tangible. Like I can, I know exactly when this happened. I can feel um, exactly uh, how this character felt because I remember what it was like to walk into a store and hear that song. Mm -hmm. And I think that in a lot of ways, like it'll end up being a period piece, but I, I don't mind that it will end up being a period piece. No. I think it strengthens it. Um, but that said, like this week alone, I've had to, I've been doing a lot of like press and po podcast interviews like this. And I had one person say to me, pop culture references are my love language. And another person be like, I didn't quite understand the pop culture references, but that's okay. So it's like, it's touch and go. Yeah. And I completely understand that it won't be everyone's cup of tea. Yeah. But I mean, I personally think that that also can give it longevity in a way, because when you like, it's a very specific instance. I mean, I've always been a huge rereader, but it's like a very specific instance where I'm like, this is the book that I'm choosing to pick up. And something we were talking about before we got started recording was just, you know, how um, going from a reader space to a writer space and how that has sort of changed your view on like the star rating system. And I don't know, I, I've been doing this for like four years. And even now, sometimes I read some reviews and like, I know that like hot takes get views and get clicks, but that's just not my style. hundred <laughs> percent. Um, so one of the earliest rules I made for myself in this, on this <laughs> crazy publishing journey, uh, was that I was going to do my best to hide from reviews and to not see them. Um, so this was probably maybe like a week into like the book arcs closing. Um, I saw something on Goodreads that sent me into a spiral and my lovely partner, bless his heart, took my phone and put a child lock on it. So mm. now my phone thinks that Goodreads is like a pornography site, so it won't <laughs> let me access it which is truly what I needed because ultimately all of your favorite books are going to have like two star and five star mm -hmm. reviews, right? Um, I can't tell you how many books I've read 
that I know are the perfect book for book for another person, but didn't necessarily resonate with me. And I know that that doesn't make it a bad book, but if I were like gun to my head, forced to rate it, I wouldn't be able to give it four stars, you know? So, um, I, it's easy to know that all objectively as a writer, but my experience as an author, especially someone who's doing this for the first time, has no idea what to expect, has very few friends in publishing and like works alone. So it's sort of, I'm in silo. It feels really, like very vulnerable. Everything, yeah. every day feels like I'm either free falling or, or flying. Um, it's almost like my brain is looking for negative reinforcement that the mm. book isn't very good. Um, and I know that it's more of an issue with me and not necessarily an issue with readers. And I'm, I think that readers should be able to view and read books, whatever they want. Like I'm not a part of, I'm not within the pool of the book talk community that is anti-negative review. Mm-hmm. I think let them do what they want. Um, but I know that I'm in a place in my life right now that my brain chemicals are going to see a bad review and it's going to, I'm going to use it to tell myself, oh, like all the other good feedback was wrong. Like this is actually, people are going to hate it. And it's, it's part of this really emotional process where you put a lot of yourself onto the page, you send it out into the void and you have no, you have no clue who's going to pick it up and you have no clue how it's going to be perceived. Um, So that's what I've been doing personally. And um, I have found so far that like the good feedback and the people that really love the book find me and, you know, we engage in a conversation and it's incredible. Um, but I'm for the most part able to avoid taking in um, some of the negative feedback. And I will yeah. say that by negative feedback, I don't mean constructive criticism. Mm-hmm. Like I think that constructive criticism is very helpful. And it's part of the reason that I really trust my entire editorial team around me. I mean, the negative reviews that were like, this writer never should have been published. Like this is mm. like, you know, this is like Buzzfeed writing, like, you know, writing that like reviews that feel yeah. like mean spirited. Um, no, I'm hundred percent get that. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you. Um, uh, but I will say that in terms of the star, like the star system, I was just saying before this, that I, something that I found since becoming an author is that because, um, I've realized that the star system can be so, you know, it can be so subjective. Mm-hmm. It can really swing one way or another and that it it's used for, you know, some, you know, measuring things in publishing and it can really impact authors. I just feel like it's become icky to me personally um, to pick books based on star ratings. And I so much prefer reading like a thoughtful analysis of a book, whether it's positive, whether it's negative, that sort of like gives its reasons for how it felt about a book. That has been more helpful for me in picking um, books up. Um, And as a long-term reader who like has always read very quickly and gets very absorbed and obsessed with different authors and genres and books, um, I have stopped, um, like I have stopped publicly sharing like books that I didn't love um and instead I just shout from the rooftops about books that I love because I just feel like as an author I want to I understand how difficult it is yeah and I just feel like 
respect my peers and I would rather um, cheer on other authors and create like solidarity and community rather than tear each other down just because I didn't like one line in a book that it took them years to write. So, okay, big, big speech over. <laughs> I 100% agree with that. Usually people will ask me like, oh, I can't find this review for a book. And I'm like, then I probably didn't like it. And it's just not worth, it's not worth anyone's time because yes, you can adhere to taste levels. And I feel like a lot of people who follow me, like they can kind of gauge like what I gravitate towards. Um, like you're not going to find thrillers from me. That's just not, it's not my jam, but you can find other people who will recommend them to you. Okay. What has like your process been like for writing? Because I know that you recently, like now you're full-time working for yourself and, uh, <laughs> I, so I freelance and I used to feel so like during the pandemic, I was like, oh my gosh, we're doing this together guys. And now everyone's back in offices and I'm like, where, where'd all my friends go? <laughs> it's just me. I, <laughs> I feel that so hard. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, um, I was really nervous to make the jump. I don't think that there's ever a good time to take a leap and quit your job. But ultimately, I, I wrote this book in late 2019. I have been working on it in some capacity for about three years. And that entire time I've been working on the book, I've also been working a full-time editorial job and freelance writing part-time. So all of those three things have been ongoing um, for three years. And I felt for a while, like I could really handle it, especially when we were working from home. Um, and I also have been working on new writing projects, like, you know, um, to coincide with the release of 100 Other Girls. And ultimately what happened was in the last year, I got to a place where my full-time job became more demanding and required more of my time. And I was promoting um, hundred other girls. I was working on edits of another project and I was also writing um, another project. And I felt very much conflicted because I knew that I would, it would be impossible. There aren't enough hours in the day for me to devote 100% of myself and my time and my energy to both my full-time job and to the book. And I thought to myself, well, you'll always wonder how hundred other girls, like how the release could have gone if you had given more of yourself and more of your time, you'll always regret not knowing. So I just took a leap of faith um, and I, you know, there were different things that I think made it easier for me to go freelance. Uh, one was I uh, have some money saved from my advance, not a, a ton of money saved, but enough that I know that I wouldn't be, you know, like on the, on the streets if things were not to work out next month and it would give me a little bit of time to find a full-time job. Um, I also have some freelance cash. I live with a partner who also pays part of the rent. Um, I launched the newsletter a couple months before. I have like little small side hustles. Um, but ultimately, I, I had no idea. Like I had no idea if I was gonna be able to do it, if it was gonna work out, if I'd be able to fill my days. But it's been about a month and a half. Um, and I have to say, I've been really, really happy um, with my decision. 
I, I think part of it is the fact that I'm in pub month. So yeah. it's been insanely busy, but my days have been chock full. Um, it feels so rewarding to put a ton of work into something and know that it is 100% me and not necessarily mm-hmm. like owned by somebody else. And um, that I'm working really hard on something I really love. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, I, I feel though for us, like it's a lonely life. It's, it's a lonely, lonely life in your, in, in your apartment, especially in small New York apartments. So. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Like if my husband doesn't come home on time, I like realize like today it was so hot. So I couldn't take my dog for a walk. And then I realized I worked through my lunch break. I like stayed and I was just like, what? Okay. <laughs> so it's tough. Um, do oh you work? what sorry if my boyfriend doesn't tell me to like go get lunch I literally will forget I'll forget I'll lose time like yeah a hundred percent are you working on anything right now that you can tell us about um nothing that I can say too much about um but I will say that um I'm gonna have some very exciting announcements in the next month um I am obsessed with the project I've been working on and I think that it really plays on a lot of the strengths of 100 Other Girls, but I think it's a lot better and stronger. Um, so I, I really can't say anymore, but if you if you liked the like the voice and the pacing and the excitement and the humor of 100 Other Girls, I would add me on Goodreads. I would follow along. I would keep notifications on because good stuff coming. I can't wait. Well, we'll make sure we have all of your social media linked. Um, but something that we love to do is we like to pair songs with books. So if you could pair a hundred other girls with a song, do you have any in mind? I know it's a it's a little hard, but hard bit of a hard question, but oh my gosh. Opening of the Devil Wears Prado and it's like suddenly I see, suddenly I see. Don't copyright me, but that is a, <laughs> no, 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 that is a great choice um I listen to a lot of like, Olivia Rodrigo oh yes book um I listen to a lot of like Lord and Gracie Abrams mm. and um Taylor Swift okay so they're from England um who writes really great she's sort of like a Gen Z Taylor Swift who writes about like the messiness of being young and in your twenties. Mm. Um, so I'm gonna say you signed up for this by Maisie Peters is the theme song. Oh yes, of, I know. I love her. The um, yeah. what is it? Kate's brother or whatever that song. Yeah. Kate's brother is so fun. Um, but everyone, if anyone loves Kate's brother, um, she has another a couple other popular songs that went viral on TikTok, like um, Psycho and um, I think it's called not friends. Um, can't remember. Oh, at least I'm trying. Sorry. Um, but if you guys liked those songs and you like like great confessional, like scream into your wine bottle music, um, go check out, you signed up for this. It's the first song on her album and it's totally, it's so Nora. Like it's all about just like the messiness of being like 22 and trying your best and like sometimes failing, but picking yourself back up and trying again. 
Oh, great. Well, I'll definitely add that to my <laughs> playlist. Well, thank you so much for giving me some of your time today, Iman. I'm so excited for everybody to read this book. And especially for those of us, like we keep saying, fans of Meg Cabot and all of the, like the click and like Gossip Girl, just like those really iconic, like early aughts books that made so many of us who are in our 20s now readers. I think that you're going to love this book. And I need Saffron's book next. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I like <laughs> the book. I need lit. This this something that I really love about the book is that I wish if I had like all the time and resources in the world, I could write a hundred other girls the entire book from the perspective of Saffron, from Cal's perspective, from mm-hmm. Layla's perspective, from Jade, from Loretta's. Like they all just have their own stuff going on while Nora's trying to figure out what the hell is happening. Yeah. And I just I want to see. I want to see the story from their POV. Um, but yeah, I would love if publisher, if you're listening to this, should we do can we write a sequel <laughs> Let's do it. about Saffron? Can we do a sequel about yeah. Layla? Because I've been re-watching Laguna Beach and the Hills and Lisa Love from the from Teen Vogue in my mind is like yes. not quite as unhinged as Loretta is, but like that same like from that era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From that era. <laughs> Well, a hundred other girls, uh, when this episode airs, will be available wherever you get your books and you can follow Iman on her social media. I'll have everything linked and I'm just so excited and I'm obsessed with you. So thank you for agreeing to talk to me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you guys for reading. Call me, beep me. Um, (laughs) Bye. I love her so much. It was so funny because obviously we schedule a certain amount of time where we can talk to these authors and their very busy schedules. And (laughs) Iman and I could have sat on Zoom for hours. We had so much in common and she's just such a wonderful person. And I really liked her book. It was so nice to see that world of like fashion and media and magazines and all of that with a really diverse cast because that's something that you know these rom-coms from the early aughts was severely lacking right that's exactly what i thought of it it reminded me of um that like if you liked this then try this trend Mm -hmm. but but like making everything better right so like if you liked the devil wars Prada or like other 2000s rom-coms with like women in fashion or like i don't know like the hills or anything like that it's like a more modern more diverse more truly like indicative of that space more than the less inclusive like less diverse Right, Um, exactly. Topics in the past. And it does stray, I would say, more into the... I'm going to try to stop using women's fiction, even though I know that's a legitimate genre, but it just grinds my gears. I would say that Mm -hmm. it does stray more uh, towards fiction with a romantic undertone as opposed to like Mm -hmm. a true romance but I love those coming of age stories and like I said in the interview it was really special because one of my very dearest friends and the first friend I made when I was 21 and moved to New York City was uh, my friend Megan who is also Iranian American and 
anytime I come across, and she's a huge reader too, and anytime I come across books that are by Iranian-American authors, I just know how special that is for her. Always being able to gift her that book, like those books is just really special for me as like a friend and like, you know, the perks that we get being book people on the internet. So Iman was wonderful. Go pick up her book and follow her. She's so fun to follow on Instagram and TikTok. (laughs) Yeah. So her book, A Hundred Other Girls, is out now everywhere you can get your books. Yes, especially if you love New York City. I think I'm just, like, naming literally every aspect of the book. Um, but it's... <laughs> This is, like, a Phoebe book for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's set in New York. It's, like, very, there's a great sister relationship within it. I mean, Amon says all of this. But it's, uh, you know, got one, one last pitch for, <laughs> for everybody out there to pick it up. And, ha- like, the side characters are great. So I love Iman. I love her book. And, uh... I hope everybody else does too. Well, thank you for listening to this episode and our interview with Amon, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Original music by Jake Thorne. Podcast produced and edited by me, Ashley Chandler, and Phoebe Wright. You can find us on Instagram at Read It or List It Pod. All rights reserved, 2020.